Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 8, Hyrcanian Sea. It is now October 10, 1636, and the Friedrich is sailing down the shallow Volga Delta, guided by a new pilot from Astrakhan, and preceded by a boat of Tatars who were supposed to help them avoid the sandbars. Contrary winds force the ship to drop anchor and prevent their progress for several days. A Tatar prince, described as a very handsome, graceful person and one of the most important in those parts, comes aboard with presents of mutton and a barrel of milk. Incredibly big plants grow along the river, Olarius says. Asula, listed today among the world's 100 most invasive species, grows as tall as a man, and Angelica as big as a man's arm. Angelica has been cultivated in northern climates since the 10th century and can be used to make candy and flavor various kinds of liquor, including akavit, gin, and absinthe. They continue downriver on October 14, passing the best fishing grounds in the country and a place the Muscovites call the Sacrifice of the Tatars. It is a settlement on the island of Perul, where a long pole is kept with a sheep's skull on top of it. Whenever the inhabitants take a voyage, they sacrifice a sheep. The skull remains on the pole until the next voyage, or until it falls off on its own accord. They also see great white pelicans, and Olarius says the great bag of shriveled skin under their beaks can hold nearly three gallons of liquor. The locals use them for fishing, tying strings around their legs and throats, and if we are to believe the tale of one Franciscus Sanctius, the bird eats children on the coasts of Africa. The Persians make musical instruments out of their skin. The language Alarius uses here indicates that this is the first pelican he's ever seen. He calls it a kind of fowl, which Pliny calls onocratulus, and a modern map of pelican migration areas indicates that the bird has breeding grounds in southern Russia, including large areas near Astrakhan. As strange as it seems, Russian pelicans ended up in London, England in 1664, brought by a Russian ambassador as a gift to King Charles II. The sources I found don't name that ambassador, but a Russian delegation of more than 100 people visited London in 1662. Led by Peter Prozorovsky and Ivan Zelibushki, the delegation's mission was to congratulate Charles II on the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, after the British civil wars, the execution of Charles I, and the abolition of the monarchy in 1649. Also, Russia's economy was in crisis in 1662, and the Tsar needed silver, so the envoys had been instructed to ask Charles for a loan of 10,000 German silver dollars. The king declined, and for many years it was thought that the diplomatic mission had failed. However, documents from the UK's National Archives recently revealed that England had owed the Muscovite government $40,000 since 1650, and the envoys demanded repayment of the debt. The Crown's treasury didn't have the cash, and only the King's appeal to major British merchants and bankers saved the situation. After several months, the money for Russia was collected and given to Prozorovsky. As it happens, the most famous member of House Prozorovsky was Prince Ivan Semyonovich Prozorovsky, 
who was governor of Astrakhan during Stenka Razin's uprising in 1670, which we discussed in episode 6. The rebels had the governor defenestrated from a castle tower window, and his young son was hung upside down on the city wall. I didn't expect to take a detour from Russian pelicans in Russia to Russian pelicans in the UK and, weirdly, back to Astrakhan's pelican breeding grounds for another wartime defenestration. There are still pelicans in St. James's Park today, and if you want still more pelican trivia, look up the diplomatic incident in the Cold War 1960s that involved the Russians, the Americans, and the pelicans. But we're back on the Volga now, and the Friedrich reaches the mouth of the river on October 15, where a storm causes the water to recede from shore. They are marooned in a series of mud banks for two weeks. Dense fog covers the ship so they cannot see from one end to the other. Vulnerable and fearing an attack from Cossacks who might easily have taken us prisoners and forced us to ransom ourselves, Ambassador Brueggemann orders the soldiers to fire a cannon at a ship passing in the fog. The strangers, who say they serve the Tsar, curse the Germans loudly. The Friedrich is finally able to get underway on October 27, and the ambassadors discover that the Muscovian pilot, whom they had hired in Astrakhan, is absolutely ignorant in the business of navigation. And the maps which they had purchased are absolutely false. They don't know what to do about it, but luck is with them. The Persian fleet from Astrakhan, along with its Russian escort, exits the Volga and drops anchor nearby. The ambassadors send for the Russian commander and ask him for assistance. He comes aboard, has a few drinks, tells them with the greatest protestations of friendship in the world that he will lose sleep if he does not render aid, that all under his command are at the service of the Holstein Company, and that he will send over a trusty pilot. But, Olarius writes, the merry companion was no sooner got to his own ship, but he set sail and left us in the lurch. Finding ourselves thus abused, we sent to the master of the Persian ship to entreat his assistance. He, though master of the ship and owner of all the goods in it, came aboard us to proffer us his service as a pilot, with more kindness and civility than we could have expected from a Christian, and, having recommended his own ship to his servants, stayed with us. The Friedrich weighs anchor at 11 p.m. with an east wind and reaches Turkey, the last city under Russian control, four days later after narrowly avoiding a failed Cossack attack. Anchored off the city of Turkey, the Persian Kupsi asks if the Germans will continue the voyage by sea or if they would prefer to continue overland. A Russian ambassador coming home from Persia is expected in Turkey within three days, with 200 camels and a great number of mules. The Kupsi says they can use the caravan to travel safely to Isfahan, through the dangerous country of the Tatars of Dagestan. Wary of continuing by sea, and hearing that these Tatars are led by one of the greatest bandits in the world, our ambassadors immediately accept the offer. The next night, the crew of the Friedrich stages a mutiny against Captain Cordes, and many are arrested. An inquiry finds that a sailmaker named Anthony Manson is the ringleader, and the ambassadors condemn him to prison in Turkey until the return trip from Russia. On November 6th, a letter from the governor of Derbent arrives, imploring the Kupsi to bring the Germans to that city by sea. 
The next day, word arrives that the caravan they had hoped to take through Dagestan is already on the way back to Persia. They have no choice but to sail the Friedrich to Durbant, some seventy miles to the southeast. The commander of Turkey sends to the Friedrich a hundred pieces of hung beef, four tons of beer, a ton of mead, a puncheon of French wine, a puncheon of vinegar, two sheep, four great cakes of gingerbread, and several loaves of other bread. A puncheon is a liquid measure between 72 and 120 gallons. They set sail on November 10, encounter a storm on the night of the 11th, and lay at anchor for 24 hours, praying the storm will pass. The winds only grow worse, so they furl the sails, raise the anchor, and let the Friedrich run before the wind. The sloop and two other small boats, being towed behind, sink under the waves, and Hilarius writes that this proved the beginning of our rack upon the Caspian Sea. He tells us the Friedrich had been built of fir, a softwood, and that she had been much damaged by the sandbanks of the Volga, and bowed under the high and violent waves, as if she had been a snake. She was opened in so many places that we were forced to be always at the pump, and continually employed in emptying the water that came in of all sides. At daybreak on November 13, they see the mountain of Durbant, and discover that the storm has not borne them out to sea. Instead, they are still in sight of land, their destination is only fifty miles away, and the wind has become somewhat less violent, allowing them to raise sail and head for Durbant. But the storm has pushed them too far off course, and they can only hope to make landfall some fifty miles south near the village of Nisabe, just across the border in what is today Azerbaijan. They cast anchor at four in the afternoon, and discover that the savage sea has broken the hinges of the rudder. They remove the rudder entirely, fasten it with a cable, and leave it to float behind the ship in the hopes that it can be repaired. They spend the next thirty-six hours frantically bailing water from the hold and debating what to do next. Ambassador Brueggemann refuses permission to run the ship aground, and their sloop had sunk days before. In desperation, they try to make a raft out of some timber they have on board, but on the morning of the 14th, they see two boats approaching from Nisive. They brought us two bags of apples, Olarius writes, and exhorted the ambassadors to get out of the ship as soon as possible, taking along with them what they accounted of greatest value. The ambassadors take their advice, but leave Olarius behind with several others, intending to send the boats back for them. Those who remain on the Friedrich watch the villagers help Brueggemann and Crucius out of the boats, and thus it was, Olarius writes, that the ambassadors first set foot in Persia. But the storm immediately rises again, more violent than before, and the villagers cannot risk the boats again, which put us that were left aboard to the utmost hazard of shipwreck and life. Mostly unburdened of her cargo, the Friedrich is tossed up and down like a ball by the waves. The anchor comes loose, which Olarius discovers by watching the trees on the shore, and so they cast out two others. There is more than a foot of water on the deck, and the rudder and one anchor are lost around 11 p.m. The pump is useless, so they begin bailing with kettles. An hour later, the winds break off the main and mizzen masts. They have eaten nothing for three days and lose all hope of saving their lives. The carpenter goes below for a time, staggers back on deck, and appears to fall down dead at their feet. 
the man has ingested so much vodka that he is passed out and vomiting. As Hilarius puts it, nor indeed could we have imagined him to be other than dead, if the exaltations of the Akavite that ascended from his stomach had not discovered the nature of his indisposition. The sailors beg Olarius to cut the remaining anchor loose, but no such permission has been received from Ambassador Brueggemann. Daylight is fading, and Olarius, who fears the tempest might grow more violent the night following, asks the master's mate if the best course of action might be to run the ship aground and save the men. They decide to ask Captain Cortes and the master of the ship, who agree that the Friedrich is in such danger that Brueggemann himself, had he been aboard, would command her to be run aground. During this conversation, Olarius discovers that the two senior officers are afraid of losing their wages. If there were no ship, they tell him, they would be looked on as useless persons, and that there might be some dispute about their wages for the rest of the voyage. It takes a written contract to persuade the two men, and so the secretary drew up an act to that purpose, which was signed by all. And yet the arguing does not stop there. The captain and the master both say they cannot guarantee the lives of all on board if they intentionally wreck the ship. Everyone else is resolved to risk it, but Captain Cortes refuses to cut the ropes himself, demanding that Olarius and the chief steward of the embassy give the first stroke upon the cable. The ship runs ashore before nightfall on November 15, and many of their companions wade into the water and carry them to safety. Olarius does not say when it happens, but he is forced to justify the decision to beach the vessel. It proved no great trouble to us to justify the resolution we had taken, he writes, noting that Brueggemann told them he had decided to allow it long before, but could not find anyone to take the order to Captain Cortes. Here I find that I must stop and think about what has just happened. Since leaving Astrakhan, the Friedrich has been beaten up by sandbars and battered by storms. She has been taking on water for several days, has lost her masts and rudder, and the two most senior officers will not save the crew without a written contract that guarantees their pay. I can only imagine the fury experienced by Olarius. With the ship sinking beneath them, he collects pen, ink, and paper, drafts the contract, and presents it to his superiors for their signatures and then the captain essentially orders him to wreck the ship. The final insult comes when the leader of the expedition, who was rowed to safety a day earlier, says that he would have given the order himself. If only he had been able to find someone, anyone, willing to tell the captain. Until 1600, Persia remained largely unknown to Europeans, and in that spirit I have what might be viewed as another correction. I've been using the name of Shah Abbas I since the first episode, because it was under his rule that Persia opened up to the West, seeking to trade silk for European technology. But he is not currently the Shah of Persia. Known as Abbas the Great, his reign ended in 1629. We will never know if Duke Frederick's scheme would have turned out differently had our ambassadors negotiated with Abbas, but they will meet with his successor, Safi I, who reigned from 1629 to 1642. Persian merchants had been trading silk with India, Central Asia, Russia, and the Mediterranean since before the early days of the Silk Road. 
But much of the first-hand European knowledge about Persia in the 1500s remained limited to reports from Venetian representatives in Istanbul. In that century, no more than a handful of Westerners, mostly Portuguese and Italian travelers serving as envoys, ever visited beyond Hormuz, the choke point between the Arabian Sea and the Persian Gulf. England's monarchs did send voyages to the early Safavid Empire that ruled Persia from 1501 to 1736. Edward VI sent the first expedition in the 1540s, but most of their ventures occurred under Elizabeth I, who established the East India Company in 1600. Anthony Jenkinson, who began his career as an agent of the Russia Company, and in Astrakhan purchased a young Tatar slave girl for the Queen, also carried Elizabeth's letters to the second Safavid Shah in 1561. Neither the earth, the seas, nor the heavens have so much force to separate us as the godly disposition of natural humanity and mutual benevolence have to join us together, Elizabeth wrote to Shah Tamasp I. The Shah dismissed Jenkinson as an infidel, and although subsequent missions met with a better reception, England's relations with the Ottoman Empire overshadowed the Persian connection for centuries. As our ambassadors enter Persia, Olarius writes that they can see mountains that look like clouds. These, of course, are the Caucasus, which he calls the Mountains of Circassia. They are so extraordinarily high that they seem to extend to the stars, and ancient poets said that from these peaks Prometheus stole fire from the sun and gave it to men. He says the region is also famous for the expedition of Jason and the Argonauts, who searched for the Golden Fleece, and for Mount Ararat, upon which Noah's Ark rested after the deluge. The Armenians and the Persians themselves are of the opinion that there are still upon said mountain some remainders of the Ark, but that time hath hardened them that they seem absolutely petrified, he writes. At Shamashi in Media, which appears to be the modern city of Sumkayat in Azerbaijan, we were shown a cross of black and hard wood, which the inhabitants affirmed to have been made of the wood of the Ark. As for the Caspian Sea, it has many names from many peoples all the way back to Noah, including the Sea of Chosar, the Sea of Travestan, and the Hyrcanian Sea. The modern name is from the ancient Caspi peoples who once lived to the west of its shores. Here, Olarius cautions us not to believe too much of what the ancients say about it, because 1st and 2nd century authors, such as the Roman Pomponius Mela or Dionysius the African of Alexandria, believed the Caspian was either a gulf of the Indian Ocean or somehow connected to the Black Sea. The people who live there now, he relays to us, can confirm those rumors are false. Olarius had undoubtedly encountered Dionysius at school because his poem titled Description of the World was widely used to instruct pupils in the geography necessary to read the classics. The first Greek edition appeared in 1512, other editions appeared in Latin, and at least 11 new editions were published in the 17th century. Geography was not taught in its own right until the 19th century, and students instead learned astronomy and geography together. For those who read the poetry of Dionysius, their professors required them to translate either Greek or Latin into their native language. These days, if students read Dionysius at all, they probably use an English translation by Jane Lightfoot, professor of Greek literature at Oxford University. Here are a few of her translated lines about the geography of the British Isles. 
but of the British Isle upon the south, two for their size the others far exceed, one to the east, which Albion hears for name, the other westward is Iron called. The larger Albion, by a modern name Great Britain called, is by three nations held. Northward the Scotch, and westward the Welch possess, and to the south the English hold their seats. In English realms and o'er the Thames' wide stream stands a large city nobly built and rich, London far-famed where our great king resides. In Scotland Edinburgh city lies, where once the Romans' winged camp was seen, and on the eastern coast of Irish land is Dublin's well-built city placed. The same once by the ancient was Eblana called. These in their bigness far exceed the rest, nor among all the other British isles can any for comparison contend. The Caspian Sea is the world's largest inland body of water, and three major rivers, the Volga, Ural, and Terek, account for almost 90% of all fresh water entering the sea. But Olarius writes that the locals tell of so many other rivers that he cannot believe it, until he sees them firsthand on the return trip from Isfahan. He notes that the level of the sea is not raised by this vast contribution of waters, and that some believe huge subterranean channels lead back to the ocean. For their part, the Persians say a bottomless gulf near what he calls Tataristan, which might be today's Turkmenistan, carries water away under the neighboring mountains. But he is not persuaded that any of that is true, and concludes that most of the excess water evaporates, and the rest returns to the sources of the fountains and rivers by certain veins in the earth. Although we use different words to describe these phenomena, both his theories have since been proven by modern science. Valerius also debunks several other alleged facts about the sea, that its waters are black as ink, that it is full of islands, that it contains an infinite number of great serpents, and that the Persians harvest lamp oil from a great round fish without a head. I also inquired of the inhabitants of Kilan whether the Caspian Sea bred such an infinite number of great serpents, he writes, but they all assured me they had never seen any, and they had never heard it spoken of before. They also had never heard of the great round headless fish, and they used naphtha for their lamps, which is a liquid hydrocarbon obtained from the mountains near Baku and transported all over the Shah's kingdom. Today the sea is known to be 750 miles long from north to south, and averages 200 miles wide, for an area of nearly 150,000 square miles. This, Britannica tells us, is larger than the area of Japan, and it contains about one-third of the Earth's inland surface water. Valerius creates a new map of the sea, which has been wrong since the first century, and tells us that, contrary to the common opinion of all geographers, ancient and modern, the length of the Caspian Sea reaches not from east to west, as it is set down in all maps. Instead, he knows from three sources that the sea's length lies north to south, first, from his own most exact observations, second, by his curious inquiry of the Persian maritime catalogue of longitudes and latitudes, and third, from the astronomical fragments of the learned John Greaves. As an aside, John Greaves was an English mathematician and astronomer who graduated from Oxford in 1621 at the age of 19, and, among other things, wrote a book on the Persian language, traveled to Istanbul in 1638, and planned to create a catalogue of books at the famed libraries of Mount Athos, which was then controlled by the Turks. 
Unfortunately, Sultan Murad IV had the Patriarch of Constantinople strangled to death for treason, which made that project impossible. Instead, he went to Egypt and made a more accurate survey of the pyramids than any traveler before him. He returned to England in 1640, became Professor of Geometry at Gresham College, London, and Professor of Astronomy at Oxford University. He died in 1652. As we end this episode, we hear Alarius tell his readers that due to his observations, all the geographical maps of the Caspian must be corrected, even though his opinion is new and directly contrary to that which hath been received for so many ages. In the next episode, we learn about the geography and peoples of Persia, we investigate the location of Alexander's famed Caspian Gates, and we prepare a caravan for the next stage of the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs>